Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 20, being recorded on Wednesday, March 30th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Happy 20th episode, Scott. Hey, same to you, man. And uh, I'm here at home in Raleigh, North Carolina, where we have a pollen index of $8 trillion. Are you in Chicago this week? I am not. I am in the retail capital of the world, Bentonville, Arkansas. Wow. Are you there to visit uh, Tyson's Chicken? Uh, that is exactly who I'm here to visit. <laughs> cool. They must get a lot of visitors down there. They do. If you haven't been to Bentonville, for us in the industry, it's kind of a fun city to visit. It's the only place you're going to get off plane, and all the ads like at the airport are targeting like retail services. Yeah, I found that interesting. It's kind of like, you know, do you, are you a vendor? Do you need help getting into Walmart? We have your solution. Exactly. And, you know, merchandising solutions and, and all, all of the, those sorts of things. So it's really fun. And of course, Walmart Store 100, which is sort of the lab store for Walmart, is here. So, you know, you get to try uh, uh, Walmart Pay and, and uh, a bunch of other sort of in-flight customer experiences that Walmart is working on. And so I enjoy it. Cool. Have you actually done the Walmart Pay? I have indeed. I did several transactions with Walmart Pay. And to put things in perspective, Store 100 is a walk across the street from Walmart's corporate headquarters. So, you know, it's basically the factory store. I paid with Walmart Pay and the clerk told me that they've had it for about a month and I was her first user. Wow. And then, um, so just walk us quickly. I know we've talked about it conceptually how it works, but uh, did it work that way in real world? And then uh, we should probably go through it in case someone missed that episode, which I find highly unlikely, but in the in the case someone did, maybe we yeah. should go over that. So for the new listeners that haven't gone back and listened to all our back episodes yet, Walmart Pay is intended to be an in-store mobile wallet that Walmart launched. Uh, it's a, a way to use credit cards on your mobile phone. So you, you load it with your traditional credit cards, um, and it, it basically accepts every credit card type that Walmart accepts. And you can also load, uh, Walmart gift cards into it. And, uh, it's a feature of the Walmart app. So you, so you have to have the Walmart app and you have to have an account with Walmart, but you don't need any other apps or anything. And so once you have onboarded your credit card, what you do is you go to the, cash register, and there's a printed 2D barcode, like a QR code, on a sign on each register, and the barcode also shows up on the screen on the POS terminal. And when you click the the Walmart Pay button in the app, it opens up the camera, and you aim the camera at that QR code. And so the camera reads that QR code, and that pairs your phone and your payment type with that POS. And so then when the clerk rings you up, she automatically tends it and you don't have to, you know, hand her the phone or a credit card or anything. And the the money's automatically deducted from whatever credit card you chose when you launched your Walmart Pay wallet. And uh, as a bonus, whatever you bought, you get a e-receipt for. So it, it has a, a wallet that records all your past purchases and you can see all your purchases. And with one click, you can send any of those purchases to Savings Catcher and Walmart will match prices if uh, if another store in town had had the product you bought for less. So I used it both at a self service terminal and it worked fine, and I used it at a a regular Walmart uh, checkout lane as well. Cool. Um, does Walmart do anything? I, I know they hate credit card fees. Do they do anything to kind of incent you to do um, like an ACH or a debit card or anything? No, they don't actually offer an ACH option at the moment. And the only caveat I would say there is, you know, this may not be the final iteration of Walmart Pay. It's in a handful of stores at the moment, and this could well be sort of a a first iteration that they're going to evolve because obviously, you know, it would be much more appealing to them to avoid the credit card interchange fees. Um, I imagine you could buy a gift card with an ACH transaction and then load that on the card, but, you know, they certainly aren't incentivizing you to do that at the moment. 
Yeah, cool. Thanks for that update. Uh, it's kind of a welcome surprise that you got to go do that. The uh, uh, So just want to let listeners know that tonight we're going to have abbreviated news section because we have a special guest. Tonight we are joined by Kevin Ertel, who runs digital for Sir Latab in uh, Seattle, Washington. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. We've both known Kevin forever and work with him on the shop.org board and, and done a variety of other things. So since we have abbreviated news, let's just lightning round it and jump in there. And I thought since you're in Bentonville, what better news to start with than Amazon? Yeah. So so did you see uh, there was some Dash news? I know you, you follow that pretty closely. Yeah. A reporter has found an SEC filing for a second generation Dash button. And so to remind our listeners, the Dash button is the single purchase per button that's a Wi-Fi device and you you can get one, for example, for Tide detergent and you can, you know, stick it on your washing machine and every time you push it, it's going to add a, a Tide product that you select to your your cart on Amazon and then you, you can, you know, review that purchase and, and ultimately purchase that that soap. And of course, lots of clever people on the internet have figured out how to hack those buttons. And so you can make them order other things. And you can, uh, you know, even some some clever folks have interfaced them to pizza ordering services. So you can have a, a dash button to order pizza. But this discovery was that the second generation dash button is adding Bluetooth to the Wi-Fi. And so people are speculating that the Wi-Fi really means that the buttons are best in a fixed location because you're going to pair it to to your home's Wi-Fi network and you're going to leave that button in one place. But now there's the option that you could potentially pair the button to your phone, and that would mean that you could take the button with you. It also means that the phone could talk to a Amazon Echo. And so there are some some folks that are speculating or and or hoping that there could be some novel new functionality interfacing the buttons to the Echo. Mm, that's exciting. I just actually got a ship notification that my tap is on the way, so I'm excited to get a little uh, a new Echo family device. I'm, uh, I'll uh, save it for the show to let you know how it goes. I'm looking forward to the podcast unboxing. <laughs> uh, some other quick Amazon news items. I uh, I heard from customers that they actually, and I haven't seen this widely reported, so this could be a Jason and Scott exclusive. Uh, but what they what Amazon has sent news to is some folks in the CPG area that they're opening up the subscribe and save program to third party sellers, so that they can uh, essentially offer their own products for for subscribe and save. So I thought that was pretty cool. That's that's very cool, and I, I feel like that is a Jason and Scott scoop. So in your face, Jason Del Rey. <laughs> uh, and then you had mentioned to me earlier you saw some cool data about that. Yeah, so subscribe and save is an increasingly important feature. So, you know, if, if people haven't experimented with it, this is the ability to build a – uh, a list and a- Amazon incentivizes you by giving you a greater discount to have this auto replenishment service. And uh, a-, a couple other retailers also offer a similar service. So in the CPG space, um, CPG is not growing particularly uh, quickly. And most of the growth is coming from e-commerce. So, so most, most folks estimate that 50% of all consumer packaged good growth is actually online sales, um, which is you know pretty meaningful, and it's it's forcing all the CPGs to start figuring out how to get a lot better at e-commerce, um, or at least helping their their wholesale partners get better at e-commerce. And uh, there's a a data panel company out there called Ten Ten Data that have a panel of users that are have their mobile phones instrumented in their computers, and they're able to see all the purchase behaviors. And what they reported was that 20% of all the CPG growth that they see in their panel is actually coming from Amazon subscribe and save. So that's a, a hugely meaningful chunk. If e-commerce is 50% of CPG growth and subscriptions on Amazon is 20% of that, that is strong evidence that consumers are really embracing this new buying mode. And, you know, you think about that, that's one step further to us not going shopping, but rather always being shopping. Yeah. And, it, you know, I would imagine it's supply constrained and Amazon opening up to third parties. We could see it really accelerate as things have done when they open up the marketplace to, to new areas. So we could actually see that, you know, go even faster. That would be my guess. Yep. 
two other quick Amazon things. Uh, I've been tracking the rollout of Amazon Prime now, and they announced that it's coming to Berlin. So uh, they kind of are doing this interesting thing this year where they'll announce an international city and then kind of a U.S. city, and, and they're kind of alternating. So uh, the one in the last week was Berlin, so that'll be good. And uh, just to remind everyone, that's a separate app. It's called Amazon Prime Now, and that's where you get um, you can pay for next hour or you can get uh, two hour and greater for uh, same day delivery for free. Uh, I've personally pretty addicted to that. I think we've stopped going to target our target runs, you know, probably 80% are down 80% due to that, that, you know, that nice being able to get things kind of on demand. Um, the other one I saw, and, and this is interesting is Amazon has uh, pretty dramatically expanded their home service offering. Uh, and this was in four metros. So now it's in 30 metros and they've expanded to 1200 categories. And I kind of put these into two buckets. Some of them are services attached to products. So things like, um, you know, mounting your flat screen, installing your appliances, furniture installation, pool table assembly, grill assembly, some of those kinds of things. And then other ones of them are just more general services that you can buy through Amazon where they kind of play the role of aggregator a la an Angie's list, but you actually transact on Amazon. So you get that kind of Amazon trust and the wallet and all that kind of thing. Um, so for example, if you wanted home cleaning or something like that. So that's something, uh, if you haven't looked at that before, I encourage all our listeners to check it out. It's pretty interesting to see Amazon's take on services. Yep. And it's really like a marketplace for services, right? Yeah. Amazon doesn't have you know employees or anything that go do this. They, they aggregate and uh, all the normal Amazon benefits you would have are there. So you can see, you know, product relatings become service related, uh, you know, ratings and, and all that wonderful Amazon user generated content is in there. And I actually find it much more useful, um, obviously on products, but even on these services than what you would find at maybe a Yelp or an Angie's list, because those sites tend to be all negative for whatever reason, but Amazon tends to have a more balanced feedback. Uh, and that's just something about the, you know, the, the culture of Amazon has, has led to that. So I, I find it a little bit more helpful. Yeah. I think that's going to be a very interesting one to follow. It has also been a pretty exciting week for those of us that are interested in in-store experiences. For all the listeners that I know were planning their summer vacation to Dollywood, you're now going to need to add an extra day to your trip because there's another reason to visit Memphis. Apple has opened their first next-generation Apple store that was originally debuted on 60 Minutes a couple months ago in Memphis. It's the Saddle Creek Apple Store in Germantown in Memphis. Folks have already been visiting it and highlighting all the new features. So far, it's getting pretty good reviews. The marquee feature is a giant 37-foot video display that's in the store. And the rumor is that each one of those video displays costs about 1.5 million bucks. So I have a feeling Apple stores are going to become a lot more popular come March Madness and the Super Bowl. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder what the resolution. It must be. You think it's like 4K or HD? So I, I have a feeling it's much higher than that. Um, but they probably have a video processor box so they can send traditional resolutions to it and have them scale up. But they probably also can author content at much higher resolution. Um, by all accounts, this is a really cool display. If I wanted to poke fun at Apple, I would point out that Microsoft stores, which many people accuse of kind of cloning Apple stores, the main feature that the Microsoft store has that Apple stores don't have is this very large format video wall. And so now it seems like Apple has embraced that same feature and, and done it in a, an even much bigger format. I'm going to guess the Microsoft one's something like a measly 33 feet and you know Apple has gone 10% further. Exactly. The the Microsoft one is more confusing cuz it's not a traditional rectangular display. It's a it's essentially a strip that wraps around the entire store. So it's actually much longer than 37 feet but it's only 3 feet high. Ah, okay. So it's more like a little band. And so there you know there's some other I'll call them evolutionary improvements in the store. One that is really interesting to store designers is Apple has invented their own lighting system. It's built into the ceilings, and so it gives you this like nice, soft, ambient light for the whole store, and then it has these directable hidden spotlights so that you can aim them specifically at particular products. 
that's them getting really low level and inventing their own lighting system to put into the stores. They've redesigned the iconic Apple tables, those wooden tables they display all the products on them. They've added kind of a cool bell and whistle to that. They have hidden power and connectivity in those tables in a a panel that's recessed in the table, and the table has a motion sensor, so uh, an Apple Store employee can wave their hand over it, and the panel has a little motor in it. It rises up so that you can plug in a device for, for testing or demos or things like that. And then, of course, they have this wooden wall display that Angela Earnhardt calls the Avenue, um, which is where they merchandise all the accessories, the headphones and speakers, and it, it uses uh, wooden mannequin heads to merchandise the headphones. And it's a little more of a, a premium product merchandising for those accessories than Apple has traditionally done. So it will be interesting to see what, if any, impact those those physical merchandising changes have on their sales. And the reason I point that out is because we also saw a, a cool little antidote this week. Uh, Lululemon released some news that they made a pretty subtle change to how they merchandise pants in the store. So they've traditionally, their pant wall is assorted by size, by tightness, literally. So you, you, you know, go from the slimmest fit to the most generous fit and they re-merchandise the pants based on use cases. And that change generated 19% uh, greater sales on the pants wall. That's not surprising to me, but I like to point that out to folks that little changes to reduce friction and match the store environment to how the customer is thinking can yield big results. And, uh, you know, one of the cool things about adding more digital to these stores are, you know, traditionally you can only merchandise the store in one way, but digitally you can, you can uh, find ways to merchandise the product in different taxonomies for different customers. And so, you know, it's an exciting opportunity to see those kind of 19% increases in a bunch of product categories. 19% seems crazy to me. That's uh, pretty exciting. I'm sure there were, uh, whoever invented the new pant wall is uh, doing, gonna be, be happy. Absolutely. <laughs> I would certainly take the win if I were Lululemon. I will tell you, often you see those kinds of leaps when you make a change because um, it broke customers out of their traditional behaviors and they ha- and it caused them to notice the pants. But after they get used to it, sometimes those sales regress back to the mean. So we'll, we'll have to see if that's a, a sticky lift. And did those customers discover the pants there and then spend less elsewhere in the store? Or is that truly incremental spending? You know, a couple questions we don't know the answer to, but... But uh, either way, it definitely is an indication of how powerful, you know, simple merchandising changes can be to change uh, customer behavior in the store. Well, I certainly hope it's a sticky lift. (laughs) Another digital entrant into stores, someone was decompiling the Facebook Messenger iOS app, and they discovered some code in there that looks like it's designed to eventually enable Facebook Messenger to be used as an in-store payment method. That seems like pretty strong evidence that that Facebook is going to also be throwing their hat into the mobile wallet ring and that they'll be competing with Walmart and Target and uh, Apple for these in, in-store mobile payment systems. Yeah, do you think they'll actually go all the way and, and kind of create a mobile wallet or do you think they'll just kind of end up partnering with a, a PayPal, a Samsung Pay, an Apple Pay, someone a, another intermediary or, or a Stripe or a Square? It's unclear. I think it's really important for Facebook. I believe that Facebook thinks it's really important for them to have a mobile payment system and for them to start collecting payment methods from their customers. Because remember, they have more users than any other service on the face of the planet, but most of those users haven't shared credit card or payment information with Facebook. And if if they're successful in doing that, that makes Facebook much more uh, able to offer a whole range of services. And we've talked about how WeChat is a very successful commerce platform in Asia, largely because... Uh, it has customers' payment information. And at the moment, uh, Facebook Messenger, which has a huge user base in the U.S., does not have the benefit of that payment information. So for sure, Facebook wants to collect consumers' payment information, and it's unclear whether that means that they're happy to take that information from other mobile wallets that consumers have already adopted or whether they want to really slug it out with those guys and try to win the mobile wallet space themselves. 
Yeah, and they've this will be kind of version three, attempt three zero at this. So they had back when they were a gaming platform, they had their own payment system, uh, and then you know that that kind of has died off the whole Farmville and all that. And then uh, they had the buy buttons, and and that hasn't seen broad adoption. Uh, they do have a lot of you know every advertiser essentially creates a payment account and there's there's a payment system there and that's how Google got Google Wallet. They essentially had so much going through that kind of a system they just broadened it out one side of it and it already had a you know fair amount of dollars flowing through all their revenue was already flowing through it. So it's gonna be really interesting to see and um, two things that I would, I would call folks' attention to is uh, Facebook does have a conference. Uh, it's called uh, I call it F8, and I think the Facebookers call it Fate. Uh, I, whenever I've used that, people don't know I'm talking about this, so I say F8, and that's going to be April 12th and 13th. And I think they'll they usually do a keynote the morning of the 12th, and I bet that's when some of this will be announced. And as you and I have been saying, Jason, that you know Messenger looks like they really want to be. The WhatsApp of, or not the WhatsApp, but the WeChat of uh, the U.S. So you know, I think that'll, if we're right, that'll be a big focus, and it'll probably involve Dave Marcus, who's kind of leading that effort. Uh, and then Google, uh, they have their I/O conference May 18 to 19. A couple of things I'll be watching for there. Uh, the next version of Android doesn't have an official name, but we know it's going to be the letter N. So the industry standard is to call it Android N. Uh, I'm, you know. Another exclusive here is I'm thinking nougat uh, because it has to be like a sugary sweet kind of thing. That's the only thing I can think of within. Anyway, uh, they're going to announce some of the things around that. Uh, there's some speculation uh, that they will talk about some of their AR VR initiatives, and who knows? Maybe they'll get into this whole chat thing. I think they've they've really missed the boat on that, and they need to do something. So maybe maybe they'll try to do something with Hangouts or something like that. Yeah, I am going to be looking forward to the simulcast of both of those events because they, they have been fruitful in the past, and it seems like they're they're poised to have some in, interesting introductions this year. And you know what we should do is we should have podcasts right after both of them to help recap them. I think we will. Yeah. This week we're very excited to have a guest on the show, Kevin Ertel, the SVP of Digital at Sur La Table. Kevin's a longtime friend of Scott and I, and we're excited to get his take on commerce. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thanks, Jason. I'm super excited to be here because I'm kind of a massive fanboy of the podcast, so this is great. Cool, cool. It's good to have a fan. We um, we <laughs> count, count you on one hand, so it's good to have 20% of our fan base here. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, so where in the world are you? We'd like to know what city everyone's in. Uh, I'm at home this week, kind of boring. Where are you? I am actually in Orlando. I'm uh, speaking tomorrow at the Retail Tech Con put on by RS News. Ah, cool. What are you? What are you speaking about? Uh, I'm talking about the website as the hub of the brand. Um, mm. Something I'm pretty passionate about, and so it should be a lot of fun. Neat. Well, we definitely want to hear about that. And you're usually based out of Seattle, right? I am. Yeah. So uh, nice, sunny Florida is looking pretty good right now. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So let's start off. Uh, Jason, I've known you forever, and I think we know your your background pretty well. But for listeners that don't know you, let's go over your background. Sure. Well, you know, I, you know, it's crazy. I've been in, in retail now for thirty one years. It's kind of hard to believe. But I started uh, at Tower Records as a clerk um, in high school. I'm still a senior in high school, and I had really long hair at the time, so it was the only job I could get. But um, it turned out to be a great place to work. Uh, Tower it was a really interesting company in that it was very, very decentralized, and it really operated more as a, a kind of a collection of independent businesses, small businesses versus a chain. So I started as a clerk and worked my way up to become a store manager. And really, at Tower, when you were a store manager, you ran the business. You bought all the inventory. You did the local marketing. Obviously, you hired the, the staff. Uh, uh, if the plumbing broke, it was up to you to fix it. You know, it was that kind of uh, environment. And as a result of that, I really got a lot of uh, business experience really early on. And uh, also to a point where at one point uh, the stores got computers, which was kind of a new thing back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, I ended up getting really good at that and had a chance to um, – teach a lot of people how to use the computer system, kind of go around the world actually doing that. Um, and that led me to a job doing project management in the IT group uh, around the time that e-commerce was coming around. And so I had this kind of real big retail background and some technology background, so e-commerce was perfect for me. 
And I got involved with the group of people who built the first tower.com. Um, and so we had that built way back and uh, started working on it in 97. Really, that was my first experience with e-commerce. And we built up tower.com and really had a lot of fun uh, in the music industry back in the day, building early e-commerce. You know, CDs and books were kind of the early thing. Uh, ended up uh, running then towerrecords.com. Uh, for several years, uh, finally left Tower in 2005 after being there for 20 years, and uh, it was before everything really went under with the the business. But it was kind of clear where things were headed, so I got the bright idea that I should go to Borders because books would have a long future. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, it actually it was a great experience at Borders too. I mean, I, I uh, led the team that built Borders Rewards Loyalty Program, which was really an amazing program we built from scratch and ended up having 30 million people in the program. But also at the time, Borders was running uh, e-commerce on Amazon. It was one of those companies that had sort of given up their entire business to Amazon, like Target and Toys R Us. Um, and I was able to go there and convince the board we should bring it back. And so we built uh, Borders.com back then, back from, from the Amazon world, t- brought it back in, really kind of vastly improved the business by doing that. Uh, got involved in digital books even back then. Um, we had a Sony ebook reader before the Kindle was out. Um, but that was kind of a struggle too, you know. Uh, I, the book publishers really didn't believe in digital books at the time. Uh, they would say things like, "Look, you know, I know that happened with music, but people love the smell of books and the crack of the spine, and you know, they got kind of all romantic about it." But uh, I, you know, I kind of was telling them it, the same thing was true at Tower and it was true at, at, at Borders that it only took about fifteen percent of the business to to be disintermediated like that or disrupted like that to kind of wreck the entire model. And that's kind of what happened with Borders, too. Um, so from there, I went on uh, to spend some time at 4C Results running retail, which was kind of a lot of fun working with a lot of different retailers and uh, seeing life from the vendor side, um, but decided I needed to get back into retail and uh, did a stint as a chief uh, marketing officer at Online Shoes. And then came over to Sur Top about three and a half years ago. Cool. So you, you kind of hinted at this, but the the fifteen percent comment. I want to dig on that a little bit. So um, you know, I think it was pretty clearly Amazon that that put the kibosh on borders. But but how about Tower? Was it the format changing that that really caused it, um, or was it more of e commerce? Um, I think it was more the format. I mean, you know, that really kind of changed the entire business. But again, it was it was this kind of scenario that you look at it, and I think at the time, people were thinking that, uh, you know, oh well, digital, sure, some people are into that, but it's you know, nobody's gonna, that, not everybody's gonna switch to that. We'll still have CDs forever. But I, I think the key to all that kind of stuff, and this is true of a lot of businesses now, I think, not just just uh, the obvious things that go digital. But most, I think, retail models, that 15% number is probably a magic number. It doesn't take that much of uh, some disruption to completely wreck a model things are built on. And uh, the digital thing definitely was was that factor more than just things shifting to e-commerce. Yeah. Did Tower have some – did they have any kind of a – uh, you know, effort to have an MP3 player or anything, or they just totally dismissed it and missed it, and there was no, no even like, wow, if we just could have gotten behind that thing. No, I mean, you know, the crazy thing is we actually had digital music. We were working with a company called Liquid Audio that that Microsoft bought, and I think is really the basis for Windows Media today. But um, the problem was really the industry. I mean, the record labels weren't licensing content. So, you know, we had digital music, but it was really indie stuff, you know, nothing on the major labels. Um, And they, you know, you may remember some of that stuff going on. I mean, that's when the illegal Napster was out and the record labels were suing their customers. And, you know, they just took a completely backwards point of view on the whole thing. So the whole industry was kind of complicit in it. That's one of my favorite scenes in the, the movie, The Social Network. Early in the movie, they have a the Sean Parker character who is one of the founders of Napster, and someone's mentioning that Napster failed, and he looks at him and goes, Napster didn't fail. When's the last time you've been in a Tower Records? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember. I, I shed a tear at that scene. I think of you every time I see that scene. <laughs> <laughs> what I always think of is I love that movie Empire Records that came out in kind of the yeah. mid nineties. Um, that that always reminded me of the vibe of a Tower Records. Is that kind of what it was like to to run a Tower Records? Yeah, it was. I, I some whoever wrote that movie had to have worked at Tower. That was so much like Tower. Uh, I love that movie. Yeah, it definitely has that vibe for sure. Cool. Okay, so you've done uh, records, CDs, probably some 8-tracks and cassettes in there, books, yeah. attempted e-books. Uh, I don't know what we'd call for series results, uh, surveying and, and kind of a vendor side shoes. And now uh, at your current role, you're selling uh, kind of kitchen and home goods. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so Serlatov is a really fun business, um, and Kitchen, it, it's its funny, it kind of reminds me more of Tower than any place I've been since, and I think it's because the people that work there and the customers are so passionate about cooking, and it's kind of this amazing environment um, where there's this really, really passion around the products and what you can do with the products um, that's a lot of fun. And the other thing that I think is really interesting about Sir Latab is that about half of our stores uh, have kitchens where we teach cooking classes. Um, and those are amazing uh, experiences. And it affords us something at Sir Latab that I think a lot of other retailers don't have, which is we have this real experience that you can have when you go into a store. And it's it's a business in its own right a very good and growing business. So as we kind of look at the world and think about, you know, competition and Amazon and, you know, everything that's happening in the world, we are in a good position to have a a great business, which is very experiential. And that's the cooking classes. Very cool. Kevin, amongst the many things I love about you, like myself, you started out life as a store guy, and then you've, you've actually had some pure play experience, and now you're you're working for a retailer that has e-commerce as a big component of your overall business. And obviously, we talk a lot about omnichannel on the show. And I'm I'm just always curious. It's sort of a tabla. Are those two separate P and Ls? Do you guys think about uh, multi-channel attribution? And what is your take on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a big topic. And and I mean, it, you know, they are. Two separate P&Ls, but we don't run things independently. Um, you know, a, a big theme of mine, and actually, as I mentioned earlier, what I'm going to talk about tomorrow at this conference is the, the idea that the site ought to be a hub of the brand. And it's true at Serlatab, and I think it's true of most uh, multi-channel retailers that you know, if you look at if you look at the site in terms of sales and you only value it in terms of sales, then yeah, we're less than these stores. The stores have many more sales generated out of them than the site, although that the site number is growing significantly. But I think that's a that's a short-sighted way to value the site. Um, really, the number of people who visit our site is more than the number of people who walk into all the stores combined, considerably more. And so when you think of it that way, then you have to recognize that that more people touch the brand online than touch the brand in stores. So how should we think about that? And and I like to think of it as a hub where there's these multi spokes coming off of it. You know, yeah, it's a sales driver, but another spoke is the its value as a marketing vehicle. Um, it's in itself, you know, a way to represent the brand, but it's also the landing spot for all the digital marketing that we do, whether that's paid search or affiliate or CSEs or retargeting or whatever. Um, all of that is uh, serving the brand overall, but the landing spot is a site. So the, the piece of the journey that happens for the customer runs through the site. It's a great merchandising vehicle, um, you know, where we're able to do things that we literally and physically can't do in the stores. You know, a physics limit a physical item to be in one spot at one time, uh, where we don't have that limitation on the site, and we can augment everything we have on the site with video and extra content and what have you. Another spoke is that it's a great customer research vehicle, uh, which is a two-way street, really. Customers are able to use the site to really research and understand a lot about the products or services they're looking at. Uh, But the site is a place where they're leaving a ton of data so we can really understand what's happening uh, with our customers. 
Uh, I think another spoke is a community builder, and it's a way to really pull our customers together and have them connect to each other uh, via a bunch of different ways that we do that. I mean, some obvious ones are customer reviews, but um, we're doing uh, this feature we call Cart Talk, um, where at the end of a checkout, we ask customers why they bought this particular item. And the content there is amazing because people are, are commenting on it at the height of their interest in it. They just bought it. And uh, that then we share that back on a page that's sort of Pinterest-like that just shows all the things people have bought recently and why they bought them, um, which is a really addictive page. And then I think the final spoke to me is that it's an in-store sales driver. Um, you know, how are, what are we doing to get customers into the store via um, – whether it's the store page, and we're really sort of enhancing that right now, um, working with a company called Brickwork to really build out a much better store page uh, capability that includes uh, that's going to include the ability to make appointments with people in the stores, um, or it's our cooking classes, or it's uh, the ability to show inventory in the store. I think it's all those sort of things that help people get into the store and really create an experience that goes across all channels. And in the end. Uh, my biggest metric is is sales for the company overall. Very cool. That you know, Kevin, you you've hit upon what I always like to talk about as one of the secret weapons of omnichannel retail, those store detail pages. We're seeing on Google more and more the searches have geographic intent. And so Google doesn't use the normal SEO to decide what to display. It actually looks in the local index and displays results that are geographically relevant to that consumer. And so more and more when someone says they're looking for a, a KitchenAid near me, the result they're going to get is the page that ranks best for KitchenAids in Seattle, not just KitchenAids. And of course, that's the one thing that Amazon can't rank well for. And so you know, getting the local SEO right, which really starts with a, a really rich uh, store detail page like you're talking about, is is really one of the the few advantages that omnichannel retailers have over the likes of Amazon. Woo-hoo-hoo. Cool. Yeah, we're gonna jump all over that. We got to take advantage of it for sure. Love that. So, Kevin, uh, one thing we talk about a lot on the show, which you know as being one of our number one fans, is mobile. Uh, And by mobile, I mean primarily smartphone. Anything you can share uh, on the trends you guys have seen? And uh, we always have this ongoing debate. I'm in the camp where I think the current mobile shopping experience is kind of hokey and broken. And a lot of people, the conversion rate is low because I think people just bail out of the experience. They may go to their Amazon app. Um, whereas Jason feels like we're closing the gap and getting there short, slowly but surely. And, you know, some of the new payment technologies and uh, server side kind of things uh, will get us there. What What are you guys doing on mobile and uh, any insights? Um, yeah, so I probably, I probably fall somewhere between the two of you on that, I guess. Um, we are focused a lot on mobile this year. Uh, it, the traffic increases on mobile has have been massive. I mean, it's unbelievable how fast it's really just kind of skyrocketed over the last couple of years. Um, for us, our conversion rate has also gone up quite a bit, and our actual sales, our revenue is actually on a higher curve than even the traffic for smartphone, which is great, although it's still far behind desktop. So I think we still have a lot of work to do. I, I do think that you know the use case is different for smartphone, and I think the the purchase intent uh, is different for people that are on smartphone. So to some degree, it may always be different than it is on desktop. Well, I, I'd never say always. You never know. But um, there's definitely a different intent, at least as where we stand today. That said, I think our experience could be a lot, lot better. Uh, and I think that's true industry-wide. Um, so, so by intent, do you mean that you think people are kind of further up the funnel and they're not like transactional? They're kind of in research mode, and that's why maybe conversions aren't as strong? Yeah, well, I think the intent is driven by two things. One, I think they're a little more in research mode. I mean, if, if you look at just the cl- the click-through on email is way, way higher on smartphone than it is on desktop. So I think people are getting the email wherever they are, and they're clicking through on it, and that's some of the traffic we get. 
but I also think there's a little bit of the intent is driven by the fact that people have such a low expectation of the purchase experience and how it's going to be on smartphone that they're not even thinking they're going to try it. They're just going to poke around with an intent to ultimately purchase later on a desktop. And that's something that I think we as an industry need to get a lot better. And we specifically at Sir Latab need to get a lot better. I, I agree to Jason's point on payments. Um, as those get better, and I'm really kind of intrigued by the idea that Apple Pay may ultimately or soon apply to mobile uh, browsers as opposed to just mobile apps, and I think there might be something there, but we'll, we'll see. PayPal certainly the, – the usage of PayPal in smartphone is almost double what it is for desktop for us, so that, that's an indicator that that's meaningful to people. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Cool. And um, so you're, you speak a lot of industry events. You're on the board of shop.org with us and on the executive committee. Um, you also uh, help run the think tank there at shop.org. So you spend a fair amount of your time thinking about kind of the future technology and how it impacts things. What are, what are some of the things on your radar, either from a specific uh, Sir Latabla perspective or more just kind of general industry things that, that you think are interesting that, that you know, our listeners should be keeping an eye on? You know, we, we've been talking uh, amongst the think tank about just what our next topic is going to be and what we're next going to focus on our next uh, piece. And the three topics that really are coming up a lot are, uh, number one, personalization. And what does that mean? I mean, that term is just so overused, and people use it for so many different reasons. But the concept is, I think, big. You know, how do we create in the self-service environment that we have that's online a experience that is much more relevant to people on a regular basis? I, I think there's a lot to do there. I think it's a difficult, difficult problem. But as we get better data and better algorithms and better computing power, we should be able to get much better on that front and really drive back to an experience for people that is meaningful. Um and so this that one's a big one for me. I, I really would like to figure out how we can emulate or and even um, exceed some of the things that can happen very simply in a store. For example, if somebody walks into a physical store, the associate is already armed with a number of signals. You know, they know obviously they know where they are and geographically they know kind of what the weather is they know what the culture is in a particular area and that's already going to be meaningful in their interaction with the customer but they look at the customer when she walks in the door and they can see uh you know is she alone or is she with someone is that person she's with a kid or an adult or whatever um how are they interacting? How are they carrying themselves? How are they dressed? These are all signals that start to inform that sales associate um, to be able to provide a better experience. And then they have an interaction. They talk. There's an information exchange, and really they start to zero in on a great experience. So how do we do something like that online in an experience that's very self-service? Uh, I think there's a lot to do there. I think there's a lot of people trying to figure that out, uh, whether it's artificial intelligence or, you know, uh, just more complicated algorithms. So that's going to be a good one. Mobile, you know, we just hit on that, but obviously that that is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I, you know, am interested in not only the browser experience, but the app experience and what's the right app for a retailer. So many retailers have created apps that get downloaded once, if ever, and then never accessed again. Uh, so why is that and what can we do about that and how should we think about different uh, uses of apps so that people stay engaged with them and stay engaged with the brand? And then the other piece that we kind of were talking about is digital in stores and, and what do we do in the physical environment to build on the capabilities we have. Um, I think there's a lot there as well. So those are some of the, I think, big things that are coming for everybody and certainly the think tank will expose. Cool. Have you been to the Amazon store there in Seattle? I'm, I'm imagining you have I have certainly been there. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's really an interesting store. Um, when you go through the store, they've got customer reviews everywhere, which I think is really, really cool, actually. Little placards in front of all the books, really. Uh, saying with little snippets of the reviews, but it also shows how many stars they got, how many reviews they got. They have sections based on, um, you know, our customers' favorite whatever, you know, variety of different themes on that front. They've got Kindles embedded in the section, so you can sort of play around with a Kindle there. 
what's really interesting though is the whole store the books sort of you around the center of the store and the center of the store is all about amazon electronics yeah uh, which seems to me the real purpose for the store what do you think about having to have the app to be able to scan the prices there's no price tags did, did you think that was weird or or pretty natural um it, it didn't bother me but books have books a lot of times have the price printed on them anyway so yeah, I guess I didn't really think about that much. Um, they also don't take cash in that store, mm-hmm. uh, so it's a credit card only store. Uh, which, when I was in there, was uh, it had sort of upset a particular customer when I was in there, and I thought yeah. it was an interesting way to go about it. When I was there, someone was trying to return some Amazon stuff, and that did not go well. <laughs> was that right? Yeah, they had like you know some some big box or something, and they're like, "I'd like to return this." Like, uh, they're trying to explain it, and the guy was having a fit. That's kind of awesome. I think I'm going to do that next week. Yeah, yeah. We can uh, we can put it on YouTube. Maybe it'll go viral. Yeah, cool. The, the problem with that theory is, like, I know you don't have any products you've purchased from Amazon, so you have nothing to return. Well, that's a good point, but I might purchase some just to do that. There you go. I highly recommend the five-pound box of nails because that's super cost-efficient to ship for free. Awesome. I like it. Maybe I'll buy four of them. The more you buy, the the more you're saving a, another retailer down the road. Right, exactly. There you go. I like it. I'm doing it. Nice. I, I find it funny. You can imagine someone opening a store and thinking that, hey, cash has diminishing interest and maybe it's not that important. And generally, I would say they're wrong, although I could understand them thinking that. But if you're sitting there saying, we're selling papyrus books, which, right. you know... <laughs> People are also less interested in today, but I'll bet you there's a pretty good correlation between people that still want to buy paper books and people that pay for stuff with cash. Yeah. I mean, especially it's a low price point, too, so it's not – it shouldn't be that surprising. It Definitely the woman I experienced there was not too happy about it. Yep, yep. Uh, I'm going to be uh, eager to see they're opening that second store in San Diego in University Town Center, and it'll be – Interesting to see if uh, if that evolves or if it follows a, a pretty similar approach to the Seattle store. Yeah. Well, you have to report back. I'm sure you will. I, I will for sure. So, Kevin, one of the things that I think is fun about your company is you guys are pretty far to the experiential side and the discovery side of retail. So, you know, by that, I mean, there's some retailers that are very utility oriented and just quickly fulfill needs when you know you need something. And there are some retailers that you can walk into without any specific purchase in mind, and you're highly likely to discover something that you can't leave without. I know that the stores have been very successful at that. And you know, often the traditional e-commerce site, it's tougher to recreate that kind of serendipitous discovery and that kind of experiential feeling on a website. So I'm wondering if you guys have, have any thoughts or if you've tried anything in particular or if you have something coming down the pike along the lines of, of helping people to discover stuff and make more purchases. It's something we think about all the time, for sure. And you're right, it is difficult um, online to do that. We are about to launch something that I'm super excited about uh, that we're calling Mix and Match. And uh, it's some technology we developed with a company called Fluid. And basically, it's around tabletop and dinnerware, which is a really difficult item to sell online because, you know, it's about how you piece it all together. We're able to, in somewhat in stores, allow people to see that, and in catalogs, we can sort of lay it out, but it's difficult online. So this mix-and-match tool that we've got on the site that's about to launch next week is a tabletop, and you have various components of the tabletop or dinnerware setup there. Um, so it's a it's a scene, basically. There's a placemat, and there's silverware, and there's you know various bowls and plates and mugs and glasses. And you set it all up in a table setting. And you have the ability to just click on a different item and choose a different bowl or a different mug and see how it all lays out. You can even change the actual table surface. So we have like dark wood and light wood, so you can play around with what your table might look like at home and variously mix and match uh, different types of product to get exactly the setup that you want and that looks right for you. And so we thought, okay, once people can do that, and it's super fun to do that, 
uh, I showed it the test version of it to my 13 year old daughter who about lost her mind on it. She loved it. Um, but then you can save it to a gallery where other customers can see what the, the, you know, kind of version that you set up, uh, you can choose one of their setups and just get it for yourself, or you can choose it to lay it into this, this tool and modify even something that somebody started with. Naturally, we also have the ability to save it off to social media, so you can do all that kind of stuff. But I think not only is this going to be a valuable way to experience that type of product on the site, it's actually going to be meaningful in the stores as well, because we have, 5,000 square foot stores for the most part. So there's not that much room in the stores to really merchandise lots of different configurations of dinnerware. Um, so now customers uh, who are interested in dinnerware, our associates can walk them over to one of our kiosks, and ultimately that'll be a tablet or something. And they can interact and play with exactly how they want it to look at their home and then you know easily pick up the products from there and go. So really exciting uh, way to really have a cool experience digitally. That's very cool. I love the idea of more visual shopping experiences, and it uh, it sounds like you know you guys are are really going pretty far down the road to sort of a a, a visual product configurator, if you will, for tabletop. Yeah, that's probably a much better way to say it than I did. But yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. And you know, we talk about AR VR all the time. I could see this kind of growing into you know, hey, I love this tabletop publish it to my Oculus Rift, and then you could walk around and see what it would look like in, in a real space. Yeah, how cool would that be? And you might also be able to shoot aliens while you're doing it. Yeah, the bust out of the table and you shoot them yeah. dinner knives. I'm thinking right. a potential new revenue stream for you guys. There you go, man. <laughs> extra lives, you know, the whole, the whole deal. There, there's an extra beautiful irony in this, Kevin. There's another cookware retailer based in San Francisco. You probably haven't heard of them, but they've had a decent run also. They announced a couple years ago that over half their revenue is now online. There's an old quote from their former CEO back in like 2008 at a board meeting when he specifically said, some categories consumers are probably not going to want to buy online. So, you know, I don't anticipate we'll ever be selling things like tabletop online. <laughs> yeah i kind of love that uh that's kind of like people don't want to buy electronic books they like the smell of the book and the crack of the spine that's always a dangerous quote no matter no matter what the product category our customers don't want to evolve <laughs> <laughs> exactly so let me get this right this is essentially an exclusive for the jason and scott which is this new tabletop experience uh, and is it okay if we link to it in the show notes for, so that uh, the listeners can play with it? That's right. You guys are the first to know. And yeah, let's do that. I'd love to get some feedback. I'd love to hear comments from the listeners as well. Cool. Well, thanks. We love exclusive hot new news on the on the show. So we thank you for that. It is my pleasure. Well, Kevin, as per usual, our time has flown by. We definitely want to thank you for joining us on this week. And to our listeners, as always, we love your feedback. And if you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a review on iTunes. Until next week, I've been Jason Retail Geek Goldberg and Scott Wingo and our guest this week, Kevin Ertel, all wishing you a happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 